Welcome back to Songwriting Saves the World. This is season four, the business season. This season, you're going to get an insight on all things behind the scenes in music. We are talking to songwriters, A&Rs, publishers, and producers. We're so excited to be back and to be giving you guys all the real piping hot tea about the music industry. Woo! Let's get into it. Accident, aka Andreas Schuler, is a producer and songwriter known for his work with Justin Bieber, Dua Lipa, Pitbull, and Jason Derulo, for whom he wrote the global hit Wiggle Wiggle Wiggle. He is also the founder of the publishing company Hanua Music, and we're so excited to have you and chat with you today. So thank you for coming. Hey, thanks for thank having you. me. Actually, I I am the founder of two publishing companies too. I, oh, yeah, Hanua nice. Music, which I founded with my partner, Ron Moss, in America mm-hmm. about 11 years ago. But also now I founded a new company with uh, some friends in Europe called Nordic Music Partners, which the aim cool. is to help writers from Europe, uh, outside Europe, in that, in that sense, to have help people from Norway or from Sweden or have, have success in America, in the international market. Wow, that makes sense. It's amazing. That's cool. Perfect. Added to the bio. Perfect. <laughs> Before we jump into the interview, we have a little icebreaker question for mm-hmm. you. And we wanted to know your guilty pleasure song. Oh, Shania Twain. All day, all night. <laughs> <laughs> Still the one, Shania Twain. Yay. Yes. Amazing. I love it when they come quick, when you're like, I know exactly what yes. I'm Yeah, of in. course. I mean, I, I play Shania on the piano like all the time and... Uh, for some lucky people, uh, sometimes I play Shania Twain at the after parties. Oh, I I, I, I call it a fan favorite, VIP but I think people. it's just I just <laughs> I just like doing it. I think the other ones are tired of it. Right, it's a but, you favorite. I think it is. A but fan she is favorite. an incredible songwriter. <laughs> she she wrote most of her own songs and mm-hmm. and she modulates in almost every song too. But you don't notice it because it's so effortless. Wow, Shania doing the mm-hmm. damn thing. Papa. Yep. Yeah. I honestly feel like the whole concept of guilty pleasure songs doesn't make sense to me because I won't feel guilty about it if I like it. I like it. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing there's no explanation True. required. Exactly. Could you start with giving us a background of your kind of journey in music? Like how'd you start? What was your progression to getting where you're at now? Okay, so when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a musical family, so we always had like drum kits at the house, piano at the house, and mm-hmm. so my first productions I did when I got two um, cassette players and I recorded oh, cool. into the first cassette player and I played it out in the room and I recorded into the other cassette player while I added an element to it. And I did that back and forth. Wow. And, um, That's cool. Yeah. And my dad used to work with uh, computer software when I was a kid. So we had computers at the house. I should be better at computers if you think about that, but I, I, <laughs> I'm not. But anyways, I had... Uh, music software for my computer pretty young at like maybe mm-hmm. 13, 14 years old. And then I just started producing. And when I went to uh, like high school, I was such a bad person uh, that I, I, I got kicked out of French class, uh, kind of on purpose. And I, uh, so then I ended up in the, in the class with people that are not doing really well in school. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they call it like oh, practical no. project work. It's, it's, it's a fine uh, word for putting all the losers in, in the class. And then uh, in this nice. practical project work class, you could decide mm-hmm. what you wanted to do. And I decided to make music. So 
for three years, oh, I was making music four hours a week in school. And I think that yeah. excelled me to uh, the next step. And uh, uh, in uh, Norway, when you graduate from college, you party for a whole month. And you wow. wear like the same pants for a whole month too. It's quite disgusting, but it's it's a party. And <laughs> and people get together and they buy, this is like a hundred year old tradition, but uh-huh. people buy these old buses or old vans cool. with their friends and they and they pimp them up with a theme. And they have a driver <laughs> and they party in this bus for like, for the whole month. What the heck? And when I, when I graduated in 2004, I thought it, this is really just a popularity contest. Mm. So I thought like if, and there was some of these buses had their own songs because they have themes, but all, all the songs they had were just, they were just rapping about themselves. Right. <laughs> and I was like, if you want to be popular, don't rap about yourself, make songs that other people want to listen yeah. to. So everybody then listen to your song's bus, your bus's song. So then I uh, just, this was like before Facebook and uh-huh. stuff. So I just went on all their like guest books on their websites and, and I said, Hey, do you need a song? And after I sent cool. like 100 messages, one of them said yes, and I made one. Wow. And all the other buses started listening to it. So the year after, I did it again. And I did that for like 12, 13 years. No way. And yes. And then what happened was that I was getting competition in Norway because I wasn't really a good producer at that point. <laughs> and so I needed to step up my game because all the better producers than me were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started going to Nashville to record better vocalists and better songwriters for my Norwegian party music. Yeah. And this one girl I worked with in Nashville, Alyssa, she, her, her parents were like country stars. So they had like this big house with mm-hmm. a recording studio and old vintage Hell gear. yeah. I was recording and writing all these like Norwegian party <laughs> graduation songs there. And one day Alyssa signed a... Uh, publishing deal to Universal Music, to Rondor, mm-hmm. which is part of Universal. And Ron Moss, who was then the vice president of Rondor, was in Nashville. And Alyssa played him my uh, party uh-huh. music. Wow. And then he, and then he, like, Alyssa called me and said, hey, Ron from Universal wants to meet you. And I said, heck yeah. <laughs> and I drove in there and I met Ron and he said, I don't know what these songs are, but it's interesting. It's different. <laughs> I, want, I want you to come to LA wow. for a meeting. And I flew to LA the, um, the morning after and I met with Ron in LA. He put me in a dark studio for two days. Uh-huh. And on the way to the airport, he said he wanted to sign me to a publishing deal. Wow. That's like... So then I moved to California and I started my journey. That's such I love a good that it story. All started because you got kicked out of French class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hacked the system. You, you know? did. Yeah, like I don't want to be here anymore, and now I'm doing music in high school. Also, exactly. why is Norway so fun? Like, what is this this one month of partying tradition? We don't get that here. That doesn't happen. Well, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's like in Norway, it's always a dark and uh-huh. cold we got to figure out something to do when the, when the sun is out i don't know right wow you really but uh, yeah the regions like to party you had the big yeah. ideas with the theme songs for the buses and everything that's innovative yeah, young entrepreneur yeah, it was so fun. and it was all of those techniques i learned uh creating these songs that really helped me uh, stand out in la yeah because um the whole idea of these uh, Norwegian party songs is that you have a part where you want to sing along uh-huh. with your friends. And 
there's another part that where you jump and throw beer over yeah. your head. So it needs to be both sing-alongable and you need a sick drop. Everybody wants a <laughs> sick drop. So I had to like, I spent a lot of time and energy just, disc- or like, what's it called? Like experimenting with sonics mm-hmm. and energy and how to make this sick drops. And I even, there was a song that was really popular back then called Satisfaction by Ben Benassi, mm-hmm. DJ. And that song sonically sounds so unique. It sounds like if you're in a club and that song comes on, it sounds like the air is being sucked out of the room. Oh, cool. And I e- I found uh, Benny Benassi's email and I emailed him. And I was, think I was like 17 or 18 uh-huh. at this age. No, I was 19, I think. And I said, hey, how did you do it? And I, I got a response from either his or him or his brother saying like, hey, we're not going to tell you. It's, <laughs> this is a secret. So I had to start reading uh, into manuals for compressors because uh-huh. this was before the DAWs were really that good. Yeah. And I, f- I found the technique and that technique I started using, it's kind of you sidechain the reverb with the signal sending itself to the reverb. Uh-huh. It's, it's pretty strange, but it gives you that pump. It's like an effect that it feels more powerful than it really is. Wow. So when I came to America... I suddenly I was the crazy scientist because I knew all these techniques and other people didn't. Right. So when I uh, did Wiggle, I did instrumental for mm-hmm. that and I played the recorder and it's just like a kick snap, a recorder and an 808. And I used my old uh, party song techniques on Wiggle to make that powerful. So was the song, the song Satisfaction that you were talking about, was that popular in America at the time or no? I have no idea, but okay. in in Europe it was pretty big. Okay, and it came to LA, and you're like, I have some. Tricks I have up a my secret. Sleeve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have some tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, and all of these things I've learned from experimenting is what I applied to my productions, which is what made me stand out. Yeah, because it's very difficult to come to LA if you don't stand out. Yeah, uh, but it's way easier if nobody knows what you're doing. And right, you, and they look at you as this strange person from another continent mm-hmm. who, who does things no one else can do i have the magic juice guys get with I it or get out okay. yeah <laughs> after the week that <laughs> so you- i don't think i would have made it today if i if i arrived here today the competition is too mm-hmm. too hard now it's too many it's too don't many. say that <laughs> well i yeah, just say you have don't to encourage people out. to be different <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny Sync is one of the best resources of revenue for writers. And as an unsigned writer, a lot of people are looking for sync placements or a way to get their foot in the door. Um, So as an unsigned writer, what are some ways that you would recommend we go about looking for sync placements? Oh, okay. One thing that's like the biggest is like, if you want syncs, you're so much more likely to get syncs if you are 100% writer on the song. Mm Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you have a song you've written and recorded yourself, you own the master, you own the the publishing, mm-hmm. then sync gets way easier because then, because I, I think you would have to talk to a, like a sync company and try to get a deal with them. Right. And you can. There are independent sync companies you can reach out to. Right. So, but, but syncs usually happen really quickly. And when there are like several copyright owners in the composition... Everyone has to clear. They might have different terms. It might be negotiations. It's mm-hmm. it, it's very painful. So for the sync, uh, independent sync company, and for the people buying the sync, 
uh, it's way, way, way easier and more attractive when it's one songwriter. Right. Max two. Um, I've heard of something because of the problem of like there's too many people involved and like it takes too long. I forget what it's called, like a one-stop contract or something along those lines where it's like you, whatever, the writers or whoever is like owning parts of the song all decide like this one person is going to be able to make, is going to be able to represent it and like they can just sign yeah. off on it. Is that like helpful? Like is that something you should do always? So I think you... I think you can do that if none of you are assigned to publishing games, right. I guess. I don't know. I don't know exactly the mechanics of that. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, I I don't really do hands-on sync with my company mm-hmm. either. But um, I think if, let, let's say if you're a duo and you write a bunch of stuff together, it's you and a producer yeah. or whatever. If it's like a pretty consistent duo, then that would be more attractive to, to a sync company. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, yeah, then it becomes more of a stops. But... I, I, I've heard about these non, uh, one-stop deals too, but yeah. I'm not too familiar with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of speaking of this, as like someone who is a creative, like you're a producer and a writer or like someone who's an artist and you are interacting with the business side of music, whether it's labels or sync or management or whatever, what are some things that you've learned that like you should know or pay attention to or look out for so that you like, yeah. Protect yourself kind of as a creative. Yeah. I think one thing is that you have to uh, kind of hustle until you're in demand. Mm-hmm. So your first publishing deal or your first record deal is not going to be the best publishing deal any, or, or, or deal mm-hmm. because you can't even compare that deal to people's second deal. Yeah. Because one thing you don't understand as only as a, a um, creative is that you obviously look at yourself as all this potential and you're going to make it regardless. Right. Gotta but believe for it. a publisher or for a label <laughs> to, to, to put all the money, because it's not just the advance you're being paid, but it's also the resources t- the company's paying mm-hmm. for and all of this. So mm-hmm. when you don't have success yet, it's an extreme risk for uh, the label. Mm-hmm. So, that risk is being taken into calculation when this deal is being made. It's like you pay a higher price for a seat around the table as a young talent because you haven't proven yourself yet. So you can't, so you can't say no to what's not the perfect deal, Mm -hmm. but you have to make sure that this first deal is a fair deal for what it is. Right. So, and also a deal that you're not stuck in forever because you want to get to that second deal. Mm -hmm. And you first, like, for example, if you, if you are able to build all the hype in the world yourself as an artist, then you can be able to get a, exactly. Then you can get a license deal, for example, Uh then you can get a admin deal, for example, if you're already that big, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. most likely you, you won't be able to hype yourself that much. So (laughs) <laughs> That's why these first deals, you you are giving away a bigger yeah. piece of the pie than you will in your future deals. Right. So I would say just, you have to, you, everybody needs help. You got to sign the deal, mm-hmm. but make sure it's a fair deal for where you are in your career. Yeah. Makes sense. That sounds fair. Yeah. And don't, don't be bullied ever to sign rights away. Mm-hmm. It's like, and oh, no, maybe the most important answer to this question is never sign anything without an attorney. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Even if it's a one song, this, that, I know the person always, always, always have an attorney look at it. It's worth the money. Mm -hmm. 
Entertainment lawyers in high demand. <laughs> yes, you need, you need to. Because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where you are stuck or where you can't do your moves because you don't know how your career is going to work yeah. out, what your path is. So you want to make sure you are as flexible as possible at any stage. Right. So you mentioned like making sure that you're not... Obviously, if you sign like a first deal that is reasonable and you're like, this is going to be beneficial for me, like, but you don't want to stay in it for too long. How long is too long? Is it like mm -hmm. a year is normal? Is two years normal? No. So the thing is building a talent, like if, if you come out of university, mm -hmm. for example, with no, uh, no track record, no, you maybe you've had a couple of cuts with friends, but it's going to take three, four years okay. to, to recoup the first money. It's like... Mm -hmm. It takes a long time. Building a career takes long. Life is long. And we're like, <laughs> especially when you do it like for reals. But the, but, the, but the good thing is like, once you build a solid career, that's going to, you're going to live off that money for the rest of your yeah. life. So it's worth taking the time to build your talent and, and build a connection. It, it, it takes time. Yeah. So, uh, but I think it's like when it comes to like options, you know, try to not have too many options in there. Or maybe if they are options, make sure you put the price up on this option. So, for example, yes, it takes a long time to develop you. But mm -hmm. let's say that if you make the option payment high enough, mm -hmm. that they would only resign you if it actually makes business sense. And not that you, they just pick you up because it's so cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Those are things I would look at, like. I would maybe go in on a lower advance the first time if you can and then higher the second time. So it's like, hey, let's see if this collaboration works. Right. And maybe see if there's ways to get out of the deal if the collaboration works. Mm -hmm. For example, we are a, a very small, uh, with Honor Music, we've been a very small boutique company. And mm -hmm. if the people we sign, if it doesn't work out personally, uh, personality-wise, or if we feel like we can't help, yeah. it's more of a burden for us to have someone sign to us than to to let them go yeah. to buy themselves out of the advance. So try to find ways to, like emergency exits if, if possible. Right. Your escape routes. That makes sense. Do you <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you feel like if you ask for a lower advance and lower options that they might not invest as much in you because there isn't as much at stake? I don't know. I, so I I never look ever at what we paid in advance and how much work we're going to give mm -hmm. people. It's like we we sign people because we're passionate about the music they make, yeah. and you should feel that passion from whoever you sign with. You should you should sign with people that need you as much as you need them. Yeah, yeah. And um, we we try to give as much attention as possible and help people as much as possible. That's yeah. It's a very so I don't know, and that's also for a major, you know, like for a major label, whoever, whatever you get in advance, it's really nothing, you know, compared to their yeah, like budgets. top artist. Yeah, yeah so I don't know <laughs> if work they, your way up. If they'd be like, "Yeah, we paid seven thousand dollars, we have to make sure we put in the extra right. work because it's more than yeah. five thousand. It's I don't know. Yeah, they're not like thinking that. that. But I think what you can though is like, you know, remember that the more people pay you in advance, the more they want back for it. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, if they want, if they, if you get a lesser advance, they should get less back. It's less of a uh, risk. Mm -hmm. So on our podcast, we talk a lot about a songwriting toolbox, which are essentially yeah, just kind of do. like tips and tricks that we, well, that everyone picks up along the way of your career. And it could be even for like production or songwriting. What are three things that you have in your songwriting toolbox that you could share with us? 
Oh, toolbox. Yeah. Okay, I have uh, I have a lot of like mental tools. Yes, love mental tools in my head. So there was one one toolbox uh, kit that I actually printed on a uh, piece of paper and put over my over my uh, my studio wall while I was working. Nice. And it 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 sounds very strange. I don't know if it sounds right, but it does. It, it says, "Does it penetrate?" <laughs> and what I mean by that is like I was, I was uh, in a club, and I did a lot of research just going to nightclubs and bars and mm-hmm. looking at people when I started producing. And instead of being social, I was just more people watching, and I was looking yeah. at the dance floor at the, at the nightclub and seeing how the dance floor as a living or, organism works. Uh-huh. And when you are in a nightclub, it's you're usually drunk or yeah. Here in America, people are on drugs too, and and it's <laughs> yeah. very loud. It's a <laughs> lot of people, so it's all these things like taking your attention away from listening to music, you uh-huh. know. And the sound systems are usually bad; it's too loud, you know, all of that. But mm-hmm. once some music, a melody, or a lyric, or a sound penetrates all those layers of right. distraction and you get it it works yeah that if makes it doesn't, a lot of sense it doesn't and when you think about it in in uh, in uh, real life if you're in your car or you're listening to the radio or you're listening to music at home all these distractions of your phone you're waiting mm-hmm. for your your crush to text back you're stressed about your school anything like that uh-huh. we still need music to penetrate all those layers of stress around you Right. And to do that, you need to make sure that it's your ideas are pinpointed, that they are clear, that there's no room for confusion about what's going on, that right. you grab people's attention. Right. And that I've always asked. So that's why I always ask myself, like, looking, working, okay, this sounds really nice. That's a very comfortable melody. That's a nice lyric you have, but yeah. does it penetrate? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great one. It's actually interesting because one thing that I joke about is that like when you're writing something say like writing something in a studio or in your room when it's like nighttime and then lighting is nice and everyone's like focused on this one thing and in the right mood and it's so much easier to think that something is good when you're sitting there in this like beautiful environment like in totally in the headspace of appreciating the music then you actually know if it's good if like when you're walking through the grocery store the next morning and you just like randomly listen to it and you're like is it still good like when there's so many things exactly. going on and it has to like connect with you when you're not try even trying to connect with it exactly and if you when, when you think about what it takes to penetrate uh, with music it's <laughs> it's really not about being loud or being mm-hmm. uh energetic it's like adele penetrates yeah. I was driving in my car the other day and I'm sitting in my thoughts and suddenly her new song comes on and, and I just like whoa yeah, it's like it's just something that has that, that. Yeah, it just cuts through and gets to you, and uh, you can use many techniques doing that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I have more tools too if you want. Yes, please. absolutely. Okay, so oh, let's see what the next one is. I I always always take a risk. Mm-hmm. And in songwriting, and I think that should be even if it's lyrics. If it's melody, mm-hmm. if it's production, every time you have to take a risk. Yeah. And you don't have to take a risk on all of them, but usually your music is too safe. Huh. So always take a risk. 
And taking a risk is not doing something comfortable. It's uncomfortable. Uh-huh. So I would always say that. And if, if it feels too comfortable in the session, change out some of the words. Right. Do some words that stick out a little more. If, yeah. the, if it's too comfortable and you're saying exactly what you want to say, do a run on the melody that's different. Do a Shania, pull a key change. <laughs> you know? Take a risk every session. Mm-hmm. And I always ask myself, did I take a risk today? If I didn't, nah, we got to take a risk. I love that so much. Want to put everything on a t-shirt? Yes. Make, walk into a session with it? Yeah, take a risk. You should make a calendar. You know the calendars that have like a quote on every month? You should have one of those. <laughs> yes. I'm so quoting, you know? I'm like, <laughs> no. Oh, I have one more. Oh, important yes. tool. Uh, something ugly. Mm, uh, okay, yeah. so... Uh, I always use this example. Do you know the difference between a catalog model and a supermodel? Yeah. What is it? So it comes to like the catalog models, which is usually just like, I mean, now you have supermodels in H&M and all of that. But if you buy any like catalog of clothes, whatever, you mm-hmm. see all the models just look very perfect mm-hmm. and very pretty, very beautiful. But it's very like, you know what you get. But supermodels always have something ugly about them. That makes them huh. more attractive. Like either the eyes are a little too far out or like the, there's a strange gap between some of the teeth or there's something right. a little off. That's and, actually true. Um, yeah, because you need something ugly to make it interesting. And I do mm. the same like when I do, I do like design now. I design houses for people and I always have oh, to cool. put in something cool. ugly. I always put in something ugly in music. And, and how this can work is that if you have, for example, if you're singing a love song, for example, and you put a very nice production with a very mm. nice melody, with some very nice lyrics, it's going to just mm-hmm. feel like a cliche, right? Yeah. There's no balance in there. It's a, it's a catalog model. So mm-hmm. always try to like, if you sing something and everything's too nice and too comfortable, hit the wrong note. Bring right. it back, you know. That's also, it's, it, this is kind of part of taking the risk, but put something yeah. ugly in there. Yeah. Always. When you look at, um, this might be a little bit too like on the spot, but when you look at like your songs, like um, do you have examples of like what you were thinking in sessions, writing whatever song, like what was your risk or like what was the ugly thing yeah. you put in? Definitely. Uh, I did one for uh, Robin Schultz called, called Headlights. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was a big hit in America, but it was a big song in Europe. And that Mm -hmm. was a song that we wrote with the same team as we wrote Fireball. When we wrote it on the same day as Fireball. And that's a really beautiful song. But it doesn't go up in Mm -hmm. 4-4. It has a strange time signature. And we just kept it like that. And even though it's now a DJ record, we never change it to 4-4. So there's like a pattern in the hi-hat that moves through the song where it hits on the melody because the song doesn't add up on the on the grid huh and that's definitely taking a risk because if we mm-hmm. knew that we were writing a song for a dj we would never have we would have forced it into sort of a, a shape instead of mm-hmm. just listening to what the song wants mm-hmm. and oh. for something ugly in that song we uh it's a very pretty melody i don't know if you guys have heard it but it's a very, very beautiful, pretty melody and pretty lyrics. And the production sounds so comfortable and nice, but 
I added, I I had this thing I bought it on, on Ralph's, a grocery store here in California. Mm-hmm. And it was uh-huh. just like with this long tube that you give to kids and you can like throw it over your head and oh. it makes like a... Ooh. Yeah, yeah, I love oh, those yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I used one of those and I just tried to pitch it uh-huh. very close to the to the tension note of the song. Mm-hmm. But obviously being a tube, you, you flick around, it's, it's not going to be perfect. And that note is going through the whole song and it adds something ugly and you don't really think about it until you really listen for it. Right. But it creates that counterweight. It creates yeah. a balance. Oh my gosh. I want to listen for it. It's interesting. Like the week after you came to Limpy for your mentor session, everyone went out and like bought toy instruments. Oh, so nice. we just have like Aww. random, like, like little, like a plastic drum and like just like a random recorder like after you're like yeah and then i went to the and i bought the recorder on the way to the writing camp and everyone was like now we all need toy instruments (laughs) to use in our songs somehow to like have something different yeah you all sound like me then yeah that's so fun i've never done that i want to do that we were talking about your publishing companies of which you have two so when you started them Kind of, if you were explaining to someone who was interested in doing that themselves or starting a publishing company, what would, what advice would you give? Like, what were the first handful of steps? Well, start, it's like publishing company. It's like one thing is very, very difficult with that. It's almost like a uh, rich person sport in the sense that (laughs) you are not going to make money of this company until you sell it. Right. So unless you have additional income streams, Mm -hmm. you... Shall not you shouldn't start a publishing company because you'll go bankrupt. Right. So, but what you see a lot happening, for example, in my scenarios, like I was a producer myself, I was yeah. successful myself, so I needed help, mm-hmm. and because of that, I needed to uh, then uh, what's it called? Teach younger producers to help me, which me then again meant them becoming better and having their own career. Yeah. So yeah. I made, um, so the reason I was able to do this was that we, uh, I was already making money on the side and mm-hmm. I already had the time and energy to do this while I was making money doing my regular job. Yeah. Yeah. And so how I, I kind of created the system where I was like mentoring these younger producers. Every time I did a production uh, or I did a song uh, with songwriters, I sent them the files and I had them just practice, just add anything to this. Yeah. And as they were getting better and better at doing that, I kept telling the writers that were, oh, by the way, uh, Lyra Clampett added uh, all of these like elements to this. It sounds pretty cool. And that mm-hmm. has nothing to do with songwriting. So he doesn't take any publishing away from the others. Yeah. yeah. So by doing that, I was able to then start bringing people into camps and then right. helping them have their own careers because I didn't want to ha- have a publishing company where I signed people and they were working under me. I wanted yeah. them to use me as like a springboard to have their own ind- independent careers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's how that worked. And and in the beginning, we it was just me and my partner, Ron, running it. Mm-hmm. And then um, and we were doing some joint ventures with other publishers, too, just because we didn't have the money to have our own employees. Because like mm-hmm. I said, it's you need a lot of money to yeah, yeah. run a publishing company. <laughs> So, but what we did uh, when we started uh, getting enough revenue ourselves, then we started hiring people. Mm -hmm. And now all of that goes back into the company. And then you use that money to sign new talent, 
then they have to pay back their advances. You use that to pay the employees and then you mm-hmm. lose money on a lot of your writers. So it's... Right. Um, so yeah. it's like... But so golf. I guess back to the tip, it's like start a publishing company because you need to. I think that's, right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the rule. It's like you, you need help or, or for example, you've had a long career and you want to retire, but you still have the contacts and you still have the mm-hmm. um, talent to mentor someone and you, mm. you have money to start paying people to, right. to run this for you. Yeah, that makes sense because I have noticed that a lot of publishing companies are started by either writers or producers themselves. Yeah. 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 So like development that as, adds up. You like, yeah. A lot of, <laughs> even with, um, I think when we were speaking to Jenna that she had done like some artist development as well with uh-huh. like Lennon Stella and yeah. that's like the writers and then also just kind of developing people that you are signing as well mm-hmm. is what it seems like. Yeah. You can just get real expensive real quick. Mm-hmm. It sounds That's like it. <laughs> yeah, because imagine if you if you sign someone, you you you're responsible for helping them with their career. You can't yeah. you can't drop the ball. Yeah. So you you have to have the infrastructure and the the time and the money to follow up. Gosh, a lot. It's stressful. Yeah. But the, <laughs> No, it's fun. It's fun. It sounds really fun. Our last question for you is the song breakdown. So Mm -hmm. basically just a breakdown from maybe the inspiration to the song and how the writing process went or the production process went to how you feel about it now that it's out. And we wanted to know if you would do a song breakdown for Fireball. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Fireball <clears throat> started like this. <laughs> I was with the same uh, crew uh, that I did, uh, almost the same crew as I did Wiggle with, because uh, uh-huh. we did Wiggle in the desert. And no um, way. the last day of our trip to the desert, we because this was the first writing camp. Like people weren't doing camps back then because mm. uh, the like the audio um, did the analog to digital converters back then was not good enough to mm-hmm. travel with. Huh. So you needed a Pro Tools rig, mm-hmm. uh, which was very expensive, like around fifteen thousand uh, oh, dollars, and this is even like ten years ago, yeah. which is now even probably more. And but my brother bought one for me. He said, "Hey, here's a nice. Pro Tools rig. Just I'll pay pay me back when you're rich." And I was like, "Oh, thanks." Oh, what a so real I, one! So I had this thing, <laughs> and it wasn't stuck in the studios. I used to just bring this Pro Tools rig and set it up in, in Airbnbs. And that's uh, how yeah. we started doing it. So we were the first ones doing these camps. And the first camp, we drank Fireball. Someone just brought a bottle of Fireball and we had such a good time. We were all like cheering at Fireball, uh-huh. looking at the sunset. They were like, oh, the best time ever. So next camp, we're up on a beach house in Oxnard, which is just mm-hmm. north of Malibu here in California. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting on the roof balcony, like roof deck, eating breakfast in the morning, looking out over the ocean. Uh-huh. And I said to the guys, like, hey, shouldn't we have some fireball now? You know, right. it's like in the morning, but should <laughs> we drink some sense. fireball? Yeah. And then they said, yeah. And I went down, I got the fireball brought up. And then John Ryan said, hey, shouldn't we have a fireball song <laughs> to drink fireball with? It was like, yeah. And then <clears throat> I think it was Joe London who just started doing the guitar riff. Uh-huh. And sitting around the table, eating breakfast in the morning sun, 
we just came up with that whole da, 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 <laughs> that whole part, uh-huh. and we had a rubber string. We had a rubber string ukulele bass. Uh-huh. We had a small guitar, and we were just clapping, doing the rhythm, and together as a group, that whole song came together up there. Wow! And and then we were like, okay, wow, this is so cool. We should get a saxophone playing that because we were just doing da 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 da, da right. And it was like, ah, oh, we need a saxophone player for that. So we uh-huh. called a saxophone player from LA that came and he drove up like an hour later. Wow! He's like, I'll be there. And then we sat, we uh, <laughs> set up the studio, and we uh, were getting also a little drunk at this point. Uh huh. So we set up the studio. We just started working with like making the drums, making the rhythm, recorded the bass, and the whole song is one chord. Oh, wow. It just really? Yeah, the whole song is one chord. And we um, just got the bass down, got the guitar down, uh-huh. got the drums down, had a saxophone player. He came, we recorded that. And then we were like, uh, we don't need any verses. So we just had, so the verses just had a guitar part. that And that was the verses. We never meant for this to be a rap song. Right. And then we were like, okay, we need a sing-alongable part. Yeah. Because obviously when people drink Fireball, we had the idea for Fireball pretty early before the drop. It's like, we need a song. And then we just wrote this. Exactly. But then we just wrote (laughs) these lyrics. I was born in a flame. I'm a certain woman of my name. And it's all just still one chord. And then here's the fun part. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, should we make a part that people try to sing along to, but they can never actually sing along to it? <laughs> so that's when we did, I'm on fire. Yeah, it's a very it's so difficult hard. melody <laughs> on purpose. So we did that to mess with people. Like no one ever is going to be able to sing this melody, but right. everyone is going to try. It's a little challenge yeah. in there. Then we recorded that. We did the we whole like, we're taking it, we're taking it, we're taking it out. We did that part. Uh-huh. All of us at this point, we're getting pretty hammered. And <laughs> the song was finished that day. Wow. All, I think we spent like maybe an hour mixing it two days later. Uh-huh. But it was done, and we just sent it to Pitbull, and he added his verses. Nothing else was touched, and uh, it was released. I love that story. Yeah, it that's such so a fun. fun story. It's wow. like I wasn't yeah. there, but I feel like I was there because it's such a magic moment that it feels so happy that I'm like, I'm just gonna close my eyes and pretend that I was there. <laughs> it was so fun, and but, but also think about the approach in in songwriting and production here. Uh-huh. It's like we didn't do this to reach a goal. We didn't right. do this because we think, hey, Pitbull should do this. We we did this because right. we really had fun drinking Fireball and and making a song for us. And I think that's like the key here. It's like always just write right. for you. You weren't thinking and the then, world and then needs. See if people, yeah. You weren't thinking I'm writing this song for Pitbull. <laughs> you weren't like, yeah. yeah, we were just like having You're fun like, with it. Yeah. And you guys needed an anthem for Fireball and it had yes. to be done. Definitely. And it's become an anthem for Fireball. I receive still every weekend I get like Snapchats or Instagrams <laughs> of people Drinking fireball in bars or it's, it's, it's an evergreen Cute. and it's like, like for my retirement, it's still like the, one of the best givers of my catalog of, yeah. of, of money too, which is good. That's wonderful. It's a great story. Well, those are all our questions we have for you today in this interview. This was so Thank fun. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of yeah, course. I'm happy to be here. 
This was such a fun chat. Yeah, I agree. And I'm just happy to help. So maybe I'll be back in like five years, you know? Yeah. When this podcast is like the biggest one in the world. Oh, yeah, it is.